find Nehemiah chapter 8 tonight as we continue our journey through the book of Nehemiah. Looking tonight at the subject matter, the priority of the Word of God. The priority of the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, uh, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and um, Messiah. Boy, that's a tough one. On his right hand. And uh, another hard name, and another hard name, and I have a whole bunch of other hard names on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, uh, the people stood, all of the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, a whole bunch of string of other hard names, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day... The heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found in it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. 
And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Folks, I, would, I hope you would agree with me that Nehemiah is a great little book in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, it is a book that is oftentimes, oftentimes neglected. Now, by way of review for a moment, remember that Nehemiah was a man who was burdened over the condition of Jerusalem. Because when the exiles had come back, they had rebuilt their homes. They would finally gotten the temple rebuilt, but the walls around the city were not rebuilt yet. And of course, this left them subject to all of their enemies. Nehemiah was deeply burdened for his people. I think he illustrates for us that you and I always need to have a great burden for God's work. And what did he do with this burden? What's the first thing that he did about it? He prayed. He went to God and he prayed. In fact, he prayed for four months. You know, the Bible says in Philippians 4 that we're to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving we are to make our requests known to God. God called Nehemiah to go back and lead in the rebuilding of the walls. He made himself available. You and I need to make ourselves available for God's work. We not only need to pray about it, we need to make ourselves available. And Nehemiah got everybody involved. Why? Because everybody has been given a particular gift. And Nehemiah got everybody involved. In fact, he got them involved kind of close to their homes and businesses. They knew they had a lot at stake personally. And so he got folks involved. And then, of course, we saw that uh, they had to overcome opposition. And we know that all through the history of the church, Satan has opposed the church as well. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we fight against principalities and powers in high places and not simply against flesh and blood. And Jesus told his disciples that they would face tribulation in the world. And they could expect that because the servant is not greater than the master. And he said if he faced it, we would face it as well. Well, once Nehemiah led the people to complete the wall, I want you to notice what they do next. They turn their attention... To the word of God and once again being a worshiping community. Folks, everything has been pointing forward to what we see uh, beginning to happen in chapter 8. They've been completing the building 
of the wall so that they could get on with the spiritual work of being God's people. They weren't rebuilding the wall just to rebuild the wall in and of itself. They were rebuilding the wall so that they could come together again as God's people and be distinctive in the land. And so they're gathering together as a worshiping community. Nehemiah, the governor, is getting them all together. And I would assume because he's the governor and not a priest, he gets Ezra. Remember, Ezra led the second group uh, back from exile, back to the land. There's been three groups led back now, one under Zerubbabel and Joshua, and then Ezra, and then finally Nehemiah. And Nehemiah gets Ezra involved when it comes time to worship and give attention to the law of God. Why? Because Ezra is the priest. Well, we see as the people of God that we are to keep first things first. There is to be a priority of the word of God that is to be present in our midst. First thing I want you to see with me tonight is the public reading of the Word of God from verses 1 to 8. The public reading of the Word of God. Again, they're giving priority to the Word of God. And the Bible says here that they are at the water gate. Now personally, I think that's symbolic. Because in Ephesians 5, the Bible talks about the washing of water with the word. As water cleanses the flesh, the proper response to the word of God cleanses the soul. Now, what we see here is the beginning of a great spiritual revival. They're turning to the word of God and giving it the priority that it deserves. Folks, what does 2 Timothy 3.16 say about the scripture? All Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. The word, the Greek, little Greek word, pasa. All of it. Not just some parts of it. The Bible doesn't just simply contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. All of it. All of it is the inspired Word of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Every part of the Word of God is God's Word. It is the breath of God. It is God-breathed. And what's being communicated in 2 Timothy 3.16 is not simply that God breathed into it. Rather, the Greek New Testament puts puts it that the Word of God is God breathing out. It is the breath of God breathed out. 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, of course, men were used in the writing of the Scripture. But the Scripture is not simply the work of the penmanship of men. It is the very Word of God. 
men were protected from error as they wrote. And that is why we refer to the inerrancy of Scripture in the original autographs. We also speak of the infallibility of Scripture. Not only does it not err, it could not err. It's God's Word. We believe, evangelicals believe, that a perfect God was perfectly capable of giving His people a perfect Word. And of preserving it. In Nehemiah 8, we see them holding the Word of God in such esteem that Ezra the scribe reads from the law from sunrise to midday. Now the law was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Some scholars believe that probably Ezra mainly focused in on Deuteronomy. Others believe he read various parts. We don't know, but what we do know is that five, six, seven hours, the people stood and listened to the Word of God, and they did not budge an inch, apparently. Verse 3 says that they gave attention to the reading of the Word. They were hungering for the Word. When it says they were weeping here, I, I think they're weeping out of joy. and they're, they're weeping out of sadness what they've been missing for almost a hundred years now. Because remember the time that they've been away in exile and then they come back, first wave of them comes back under Zerubbabel and, and then Ezra and now, now Nehemiah. Folks, time it's all said and done, you're getting close to a hundred years now since they've had an opportunity like this. I think they're grieved in part because of what they've been missing and they're rejoicing too. I think their tears are both tears of sadness and joy. And they're, they're just, they're so focused in on it. There's been a famine of the word. And now that famine is over. And they're feasting again. Now, as Ezra read, you'll notice he read from a raised platform in a pulpit area. And as he read, the people stood for the reading. And all around him, verse 6 says that the people were saying, Amen and Amen, which means, so be it. Also, you'll notice around Ezra were stationed attendants. And they were on all sides. I want you to remember it's a tremendous crowd here. From chapter 7 verse 66. We're told that over 42,000 people were there. Not even counting the more than 7,300 servants. So you've got, you've got about 50,000 people there. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, we're, we're told that all of these people are gathered as, as one man at the water gate. What a sight that must have been. <laughs> and you know what's amazing is back then, and, and we're told too that even, even back a couple of hundred years ago, with the great preachers like George Whitfield and all, their ability, Charles Spurgeon, who would preach to about 10,000 every week, their ability, minus a PA system, to be able to project their voices and speak to the crowds. Just amazing. 
Again, what a sight it must have been. As Ezra read, maybe there were times he took a break because the Bible says that these other men would give translation and they would explain what was being read. Now that's the essence of expository preaching. In expository preaching, what are you doing? You're explaining the Bible. You're reading the Bible and you're telling the people what it means. Paige Patterson says expository preaching is helping the people of God read their Bible better. Reading the Bible and giving explanation. That's expository preaching. When you read verse by verse and passage by passage and give explanation of the Word of God. And that's what they were doing. You know, it's kind of funny. People complain today about long sermons, right? How would you like a sermon like this? Five, six, seven hours. Wow. Folks, if there's a famine in the land today, I, I think it's a famine of the Word of God. So many churches are doing anything and everything but keeping the Word of God central. If surveys are accurate, if they can be trusted, one thing that we're being told through these surveys and studies is that more and more in today's church, even today's evangelical church, people simply don't know the Bible anymore. They don't even know basics. They can't name the four Gospels. They can't tell you John 3.16. They can't tell you basic characters in the Bible that you and I know all about. In survey after survey that's coming out today from different companies doing these studies and so forth, people even in the church today don't know the Word of God anymore. There's a famine of the Word in the land. Mm-hmm. Right. No, it's it's a paraphrase. It's not a translation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Eugene Peterson, he took some liberties with, with that. It's not a it's not a good solid translation at all. I hope you're not reading the message as though it's a translation. It's not. Hmm. Amen. 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 Yes. In First Timothy, Paul told Timothy when he gathered the church together for worship, he needed to give attention to the public reading of the word. In 2 Timothy, remember what he said to Timothy in chapter 4? He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Dr. uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest expository preachers of all time, said, The primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the Word of God. He went on to say, "The The decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined. That shouldn't surprise us. We're being given an example here to keep the Word of God central. You know, week after next, what are we coming up on week after next? Reformate, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And of course, one of the central tenets of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Catholic Church had been saying that the source of authority was not only the Bible, but also church tradition and the words and writings of the popes. And the reformers came along and said, no, 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 no. The only true source of authority for the church is the scripture. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Secondly, I want you to see tonight the the primary message of the word of God. The primary message of the word of God. It points out the plight of men. In Romans 3.23 we read all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and then in Romans 6.23 we read that the wages of sin is death. And we learn in the Bible that there is absolutely nothing that we can do on our own to fix our situation. We can't do anything to save ourselves. Apart from Christ, we are hopelessly condemned. What teaches us that? The Bible teaches us that. It's in the Word of God that we learn what our condition is. But the Word of God doesn't leave us there. After pointing out the bad news, it gives us the good news. It points out not only man's condition, but it points out the grace of God. Again, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why the church must always keep the Word of God central. 
Paul, writing to the Romans, said, I'm eager to come to you and preach the gospel. There, there, I, I've got a debt. I've got an obligation to come and preach the gospel to you because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And that's why he said he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Because again, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. The word of God reveals the righteousness of God in Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.21 said, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The wisdom of the world will not tell you how to be saved. But the word of God will. Folks, in some church services today, the word, the, the word of God has taken a back seat to everything. If the preacher's lucky, in some circles, he gets 10 or 15 minutes to expound the word of God. Now, I love different elements of the worship service, whether it's music or drama or singing or what, whatever it might be. But the church dare not let the preaching of the Word of God go by the wayside. It's been noted how many of the great cathedrals of Europe are now little more than museums. And some who have looked at the history of those, what's gone on in England and, and Europe, ha have pointed back to the fact that whereas once the pulpits were aflame with men of God who preached the word of God, when that went by the wayside, those churches have continued to die off. You go into them today and they're little more than museums celebrating what was in the past. That's what happens when the preaching of the Word of God falls by the wayside. It makes sense too. What good is church if the Word of God is not kept central? Thirdly, I want you to see the prophet of the Word of God. The prophet. I don't mean a prophet like a, a man. A prophet like financial gain. P-R-O. F-I-T, the prophet of the Word of God. The Word of God has many benefits. Now, I've just spoken about two of the most important ones, the plight of men and the grace of God. Let's add to that, okay? And then we're going to come back to Nehemiah 8 before we're done. But we see that it's necessary for a blessed and a fruitful life. Just think with me a moment about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of God, in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does he prospers he says blessed that doesn't mean just happy it includes that but it refers to the man or the woman who has a deep sense of peace and joy and well-being down deep inside 
Who's the blessed person? The one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the world, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what does he do? He meditates in it day and night. Folks, the Bible is trying to tell us something. You want peace and joy in your life? You need to be committed to the Word of God. You need to know it inside and out. It takes work. Read your Bible, but do more than read your Bible. Study your Bible, and it takes time. But you've got to mine out the treasures that are there. And you need to read the whole counsel of God and understand how it all fits together. The Bible is not just some random collection of books and stories and personalities. It all ties together. The scarlet thread of redemption ties together. The main character is who? Jesus Christ. It's God's story of redemption of what he's done for us in Christ. The Old Testament's preparing us for that. The New Testament reveals it all. And then it points forward to what we have to look forward to. It all ties together. It's one central message of redemption. And every single book in the Bible has a purpose in that redemptive story. It's tragic how some people read their Bibles, though. It's just some kind of random collection of books and characters. Psalm 1 says, not only will you be blessed, but your life will be fruitful. We see also that the Word of God provides wise counsel. You ought to jot down Psalm 119. Go home and read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Uh, verse 11 of Psalm 119 says, Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Psalm 119 24, Thy testimonies are also my delight. They are my counselors. Psalm 119 28, My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to thy word. Uh, Psalm 119, 98 and 99. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. And then Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God gives wise counsel and it strengthens you. It'll lead you in the right path. We see also that it, it, it gives one a solid foundation. Remember that uh, story Jesus closed the Sermon on the Mount with? Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And it fell and great was its fall. Both, both builders 
encountered the same storms. Believers encounter storms. We're not spared from that. But the one who builds his life on God's word will have a sure foundation and will be able to stand. Well, I want you to see lastly the prompting of the word of God. The prompting of the word of God. The word of God led them to make some changes. Look back at Nehemiah 8 again. It led them to make some changes. When they gave attention to the word of God, they discovered that they had been neglectful. What had they been neglectful of? Beginning there in verse 13, what had they been neglectful of? Exactly. The festival or the feast of the booths. They saw, it came to their attention when they gave proper attention to the Word of God that they had not been observing the festival of booths. And the Jewish people were supposed to do that every year. What was the festival of booths? Does anybody recall? It was that too. That, that was part of it. What was the other part of it? You know, they, they'd build the little lean-to things and they'd go out of their homes and live in those little lean-to things. What, what was that symbolic of? Remembering their time in the wilderness and how God had taken care of them. They weren't even in the promised land yet. They didn't have their own houses built yet. But still, as they lived in those temporary shelters in the wilderness, God had led them and fed them and taken care of them. And it was in the festival of booths every year that they were to recall that. They were to recall God's provision for them. And his watch care over them. That, that was the main ones. Yes. Yes. Josh. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, celebrating first fruits. Pentecost. So, so certainly. Yeah. Those were the main festivals that they were to celebrate. You can go back and read about all those in uh, Leviticus. For example, the festival of booths in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23 would give some background on our text tonight about the festival of booths. It, but as they celebrated the festival of booths, it would cause them to look in three directions. They would look back. Again, they would, they would look back to when they left Egypt and God's provision for them. They would look at the present. They would look at the land where they were now and what all God had, had given to them. And it ought to cause them to have a profound sense of gratitude. And then it would cause them to look forward. They were to lean upon God for the future. The same God who delivered them in the past would be the God who would take care of them in the future. 
And so it was a festival that was rich in meaning. And, and, and because of a famine of the Word of God the previous decades, they have been neglecting what they were supposed to be doing all along. And so when they got back in the Word and they discovered this, immediately they got busy about doing it. Now folks, isn't that the way it's supposed to be with the Word of God? As we study it and find out things in the Word of God that we're neglectful of, it ought to cause us to do those things, right? Jesus said it's not just the one who hears, but the one who hears and does, who's the wise man who built his house on the rock. What are, what are people going to, what are we going to know that we're supposed to be doing if we are not a people of the book? It's in here that we learn how to be the people of God. And then also in chapter 9, we, we won't look at that in depth tonight, but in chapter 9, they, they confess that they've been sinful. And because of their sin, they've been in a mess. Just look over at verse 32 of chapter 9. For a moment. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked deeds. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we're slaves... And its rich yield goes to the kings who you set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. They're under Persian rule. Yes, they've come back to their land. They rebuilt. But they're still under Persian rule and oppression. And they're suffering because of that. And why does Nehemiah, why does Ezra and the people come to this, why do they come to this conclusion? Because they've sinned and neglected to obey God's word. Now folks, all suffering in our lives uh, doesn't necessarily come from personal sin. We suffer in the world because we live in a fallen world, which is sin. Sin brought about the fall. So ultimately, suffering goes back to sin. Somebody's sin, right? Adam and Eve and the fall of man. We live in a fallen world now where bad things happen, even to Christians. We can suffer because of that. We just live in a fallen world. That... Guess what? God's, 
God's making a new heavens and a new earth one day in which righteousness dwells. But for now, we live in a fallen world where bad things happen. And everybody gets caught up in those bad things. We suffer because of our personal sin and consequences of that. The sin of others. Satan. A lot of reasons why we suffer. God may have you suffer because he wants to teach you the sufficiency of his grace. Like you told Paul about his thorn in the flesh. God may have you suffer just because he's going to do something to, to expose his glory through that. Like the man born blind in John 9. Why did this happen? Whose fault is it? Jesus said not, not anybody's fault. Wasn't his parents' fault. Wasn't his fault. But this... This blindness is for the glory of God. A number of reasons why we suffer. But one of the reasons we do suffer is because of sin. And that's what he's saying here. They are suffering because of their sin. Again, what is it that brought their attention to this? the word of God that they're now giving attention to and what are they going to go on to do in chapter 10 they are going to make a fresh commitment again to being the people of God I want to ask you tonight are you giving the word of God the attention that it deserves do you read it and study it in your own life? Are you digging treasures out of it? Maybe somebody in here needs to make a commitment tonight to start doing that. In church, we need to make sure we're always giving proper attention to the Word of God. In Sunday school class, I hope, I'm not in Sunday school classes, don't go on with announcements and this concern and that concern for 30 or 40 minutes and give your teacher 10 or 15 minutes. Make sure you don't do that. Give the scripture the attention it deserves, right? Keep it central. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, one of the evidences that the Spirit of God had fallen on that church was the way that they received the Word of God and responded to it. That was an evidence that God was at work among them. The way that they received it and responded to it. Has the Word of God exposed some shortcoming in your life or sin? I'm sure it has many times. It continues to do that, doesn't it? And when it exposes those shortcomings and those sins, we need to deal with it as the people did in Nehemiah 8 through 10. We need to respond to what it tells us to do. We need to repent and confess it 
and get it right. God doesn't give us His Word simply to entertain us or inform us. He gives us His Word to transform us. 